to What in the World, language podcast. I'm here today with Jay Wamstead. Jay has taught math at Benjamin E. Mays High School in Southwest Atlanta for 14 years. His writing has been featured in various journals and magazines, including Harvard Educational Review, Mathematics Teacher, and Sojourners. He can be found online at the Southeast Review, Under the Sun, and the TEDx YouTube channel, where you can watch his 2017 talk, Eating the Elephant, Ending Racism, and The Magic of Trust. He and his wife have four young children, and he rides his bicycle to and from work just about every day. You can contact Jay on Twitter at jwomstead or by email, womstead at gmail.com. Welcome to the show, Jay. Welcome, Jadea. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. So we're kind of just going to go ahead and jump into it, if you don't mind. Um, so Let's you do know, it. I'm ready. Since this is a language podcast and you are a math teacher, um, tell us how you go about assisting English language learners in your math class. What are some of the language challenges you've encountered, and what are some of the ways in which you address them as they come up? Well, I was thinking about this question, and the first thing that jumped into my mind was, first off, that math to so many people is a foreign language already. Um, so This is true. Th- up front, uh, my classroom is, uh, the, I'm the white guy. Um, there's about 95% black students, and then there'll be about 5%, um, mostly Hispanic. Um, and every once in a while, we'll get a, like a, a black student who's African who speaks uh, her, their native language, might be French or might be um, something, something else. Um, but mostly it's English in the room. Even besides that, there's this math. The math language is just so much. Uh, there's so much going on with the with the words, and then words mean different things at different times in math. And just the the very structure of working through mathematics is like learning completely different rules. And it is it is very much like a language. And so I was thinking about my English language learners in my room. So already my native English speakers speakers they struggle so much to learn the math language and I don't blame them. I mean, that's, that's most of the struggle of a math teacher is teaching math language to people that speak English. But then I look out in my room and I'll have one to three students, usually they're Spanish speakers. And I know that they're learning English and they're trying to learn math, the English math. Right. And, and the challenge, I just can't even imagine the challenge for them. Um, and then on top of that, you add the complexity of me being white, and in my 40s, I, I d- speak a totally different English than my black 16-year-olds. Um, and that's not a, a, a better English. It's just a different English. So there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of language complexities going on in the room at any one time. And So have I've, you made any accommodations? Uh, do any of your students come with like specific uh, accommodations you need to, you need to meet? Uh, speaking of the, thinking about those language students. Um, or do you yeah. just, you just give them scaffold, um, assignments? Do you like, what does it look like? What, do, what are some of the things you kind of do, um, to, to help those so kids I, out? I've been pretty lucky in that, um, I, most of my 
English language learners uh, are strong English speakers, okay. e- even if they're completely fluent right. in Spanish. They're they're strong English speakers. Okay. And the couple times I've had a a, a low English student, um, I've been blessed with someone in the room who was completely fluent in Spanish and English at the same time. So they could completely take anything I said and then translate it for me. It was almost like I had a translator walking with me at all times. So um, you pair those guys up. Do you? And- did did that pose any of any unique challenges in and of itself? Because you know, uh, a lot of times, um, some some of those students don't want to be placed in that role of of interpreter translator. Um, yeah. In that case, I'm assuming and, it probably went well for you. For you, it, it's it's gone well, and I've had that happen where it hasn't, where I've where I've like had to rely on or I tried to rely on somebody to to uh, translate for me, and they just. You know, whether by personality or conflict with the other student, or just pure like they just didn't want to do it, <laughs> like which is right. totally fair. Right. Um, uh, I, I speak. It's like I said, most of my English language learners are Spanish speakers. I speak a minimum of Spanish, um, enough that it's kind of I think endearing, um, or at least I hope so. When I try to speak a little Spanish and mm-hmm. uh, mess it up, um, and but I you're trying, that, and that's important. I think so. I think I think it's it it at least engenders a little bit of like trust in that. Like, yeah, you're learning English and and math, but but you know things I don't know, and I, I can I can like ask you. You're the expert in Spanish, right? So if I'm if I can try to engage in that and look a little foolish and let you be the expert, I, that's always been helpful. It's a um, give and take. That's that does develop trust. I like that. I think that's uh. I think that's uh, commendable. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's like I said though. I've been lucky. I, there's the, the part of Atlanta I'm in is just very. It's 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 ninety ninety five ninety six percent black, and I mean native Atlanta and black. I mean not. We have a few immigrants, um, African, um. And then we have a, f- a few Hispanics, but most of the Hispanic students live on the east side of town. We're on the west side of town. It's just right. the way it works. Okay. So. Okay. Well, just had to. I had to get a uh, a language question in there since this is a language podcast. <laughs> I <laughs> go ahead. I, I think about it a lot because I know even if even if I'm, when I'm talking to my own biological children about math, uh, they don't know what I'm talking about half the time. So it is a totally different language. <laughs> It just, was my just, week. Just, that, it was my weakest subject in high school math. So, and it was like a a, um, a language to me. It was it was definitely learning another language. Uh, wasn't very strong, but I I blame that on the teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely the teacher's fault. <laughs> so let's just jump right into some things that uh, that I've read um, that you have uh, published. So in your piece, my black students have learned to be wary of people who look like me. And that's not racist. Um, you mentioned in that article that racism equals prejudice plus power, right? You got some blowback on Twitter on that one. Um, and a lot of people, specifically white people, have a hard time with this definition of racism, feeling that they themselves are not racist and definitely they don't have any power. So where do you see this power and prejudice manifesting itself in the classroom and in what ways can we as educators and specifically white educators uh, begin to address it? Well, I think the most important thing 
is just uh, recognition that that we come into that room. It, any teacher comes into the room with a lot of power, um, and that's that's just that's the way the school's set up is that the teacher's in charge of their room, and you might see a, a, a principal in the room once or twice a week, but mostly that teacher is is the is the boss, and there's, there's power there. That teacher has control over the student's grade. It has con- he or she has control over the students. Um, you know, over their body in a certain way in terms of their discipline and where they're going to sit and where they're, you know, how, when they can speak and when they can't speak. There's, there's a power there no matter what. Right. Right. Um, that's just the way the school's set up. And, and some of that's good. Um, but, uh, some of it is probably intimidating, even in a, uh, even in a situation where you're talking about two, a white teacher, white student, black teacher, black student. But then when you mix that, when, when you get me as, as a white guy walking in, not, not only am I in charge of the room because I'm the teacher, I've, I've been granted authority over that room, but I also carry with me this just historical um, power that, that, that white people have had for centuries in this country. Um, and, and not only that, I carry with me the kind of the drama of the last of my students' whole lives, really, of, of, of what's been going on in the, in the political world, that they're, you know, I mean, they're, the, the joke is that teenagers don't care about this stuff, but, but they notice it, and I think they do, and they do care. Um, they may not care the way adults care, I guess, uh, always, but so the, the, the power dynamic of me, the natural power dynamic of me being a teacher is certainly complicated by me being a white teacher, because just by that tattoo on my skin i walk in the room and i'm 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 perceived differently and and there's nothing there's nothing to do about that you can't fix it but i i think what i didn't understand when i first started teaching is i i guess i just ignored that or i tried mm-hmm. to ignore it i tried mm-hmm. to pretend it didn't matter that's, the, um, that's i think the point that, you try to pretend it didn't matter that's a that's a critical yeah, realization i think and I think a lot of white teachers, that's how we operate in classrooms with black and brown students is we try to pretend it doesn't matter. We're, we're, I'm white, you're black, you're brown, I don't see color, we're all the same. But What was some of the blowback you got back on, uh, on Twitter on that? Um, what are some of the things uh, that people were like, really? You got, that's the definition of racism? Prejudice equals well, power? It's so interesting because that – the. Uh, that, that um, article was posted, and they titled that article, by the way. It's a very lengthy title. I had a shorter title, um, but they retitled it, I think, for uh, maximum Twitter grabbing. Um, but they actually just reposted it yesterday, and it, it's been kind of spiraling around, not Twitter this time, but on Facebook. And just a lot of and, – and I get white people. I, I, I understand white privilege is a really like – hard concept to understand if you're a middle-class white guy who's lived your whole life in this country and, and hasn't really tried to bother anybody and just tried to make a living and maybe the economy is leaving you behind or at least you're not getting ahead. And all of a sudden now, it feels like all of a sudden to you, if you're in your 40s or 50s, is all of a sudden everyone's telling you, oh, you're so, you're white privilege, you're so privileged. And I get it's, um, <laughs> I get not feeling privileged if you're a middle class white guy or a lower middle class white guy, even to think about the, the, what the 
factory jobs and all of that is the economics are a mess. Yeah, but that's that's and kind of separate of from the white the white tears shed over over not getting their privilege, right? So, but I I understand yeah. what you're saying. You can you can you can you can you can understand their perspective. So go ahead and not to cut you off. I can. Oh no no, I can understand it. But again, but yet the way it manifests itself when they argue, and I've watched, I've been watching this argument again. Just it's been happening again in the past right. day. Um. As it manifests itself by just a lot of like anger and, com- and and complaining about, well, this black guy got this job and they blame affirmative action, or, or black uh, guy, this guy, black kid got accepted at college and my kid didn't because of, you know, selection that, committees and and that typical no, stale stale argument, you know, um, we read about that yeah. in D'Angelo's work, White Fragility, right? You can you can see those yeah. arguments are just they're common and that's the first stage, right? Of, and of that is the like the pushback they give. So you got a white guy in a little article trying to tell you that that uh, racism is prejudice plus power, and you, if you're another white guy, and you don't feel powerful, and you see these, you you think you see at least these black people being lifted up through what you think feel like racist policies, you get angry, um, and I. Uh, I've seen a lot of it. <laughs> seen a lot of it. And that manifests itself, and and a lot of times you interact with uh, uh, teachers uh, on on Twitter, right? So a lot of these articles yes. are are geared toward educators in the classroom, which kind of leads me into this question, um, and it's a critical topic to address. Um, a lot of times, as we as white educators in these spaces, meaning white educators with predominantly African-American, Hispanic students, step into the classroom with a deficit lens toward black and brown students, which set the stage, which will set the stage uh, for many problems uh, in relation to classroom management and relationships. Um, What is your take on this uh, for white educators stepping into these these spaces and uh, dealing with, with that power, not recognizing it perhaps, being angry at the notion of uh, privilege, right, and what how that impact. I'm really thinking here about relationships and classroom management. If you come into a classroom yeah. with a deficit lens, meaning you look at those students through a deficit lens, um, and, and I think that I think what's so hard is that. And again, I'm thinking. I, I was an older teacher when I got started. I, I was 30. First time I ever walked into a classroom um, as the teacher, and I was older, but not really wiser. I wasn't ready. I, I, I had no no notion of what that even would have meant. Deficit lens. What, is, what does it mean to say I see um, my students through a deficit lens? Mm-hmm. But that is so mixed up with this this idea of this is white supremacy. This this idea of of privilege that 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 most white people reject. But, but the fact is, is that, that we, this country was built on white supremacy. We are granted privilege through no good of our own, just by virtue of our skin. And, and that makes us, it gives us deficit feelings about others, about others of different uh, races. And mm-hmm. that, that is like, like, it'd be almost impossible for a white person to grow up in America and not have that kind of baked in their blood. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm, I don't. I don't want to say impossible. I, 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 you, 
we were talking about your story a little bit before and and i think there's probably lots of stories like that that where you you can you can you can avoid that i did not avoid that i grew up i grew up around white people i grew i went to to a mostly white college i went to a mostly white high school my i I married a white woman my white my white wife has a white family I, i mean like you know i'm surrounded by white people my whole all my days until i'm 30 years old and i walk into a classroom with all black children for the first time and underneath the the hood of your brain when you're that teacher is is feeling like these children are, are no not pun, as smart. no pun intended on on that underneath the hood of your brain <laughs> Jay, I'm sorry continue that was i just i guess i just i guess out. what I, I guess what i'm saying is that another thing that's changed if let, let's go back to our typical white guy or middle class white guy who feels like the world's changed around him and all of a sudden they tell him he's privileged is now there's there's guys like me out there telling him not only are you privileged but also you're racist and it's it's not your fault you're just racist because you're white and you were born in america and you got to deal with that and and your immediate reaction is that i'm not racist i don't i don't see anybody any different than anybody else and and then the 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 white academics are on the other side saying no you're racist because we live in a society that's racist and white supremacy and then you've been you've got that in your head and, and, you know, I, we can't really argue here too much about whether that's true or not. I think it's certainly, I, I it is true. <laughs> so what do you think that walking into that classroom, give us like any instances where it, it had a negative impact on your students. I think I remember reading, I can't remember which article uh, you wrote that in where, where the interactions uh, with a student um Maybe perhaps that deficit lens manifested itself. Um, might not have been your article, but uh, I'm just thinking here of like how how we think about the school to prison pipeline. We come in as white educators, uh, yeah, with with what we bring to the table, which oftentimes isn't isn't good. Uh, and we look at these students, uh, and and in terms of classroom management, we adopt these zero policy notions, right? Zero tolerance, not zero policy. Um, yeah. So I think what like how would you doing this work now and and being steeped in this work for a while what what are some of the things teachers need to be aware of so they don't they don't continue this this deficit lens approach to classroom management. I think you're thinking about there's a, a different article I wrote where I I, I kind of went on at length about about how hard it is as a white guy navigating these, these cultural differences, like names are a cultural difference and, and hair and dress and, and, and slang and, and, and all that is just, is, is culturally different. Um, it'd be different either way if I'm 43 and you're 16, but if I'm a white 43 year old and you're a black 16 year old, it's even, it's even worse. And I, I wrote a, I wrote a little bit in one of my pieces about, I, and I'm, I was thinking of a, specific student when i wrote this about he was he was he was 16 or 17 i can't remember and he he had he was covered in tattoos already and i have tattoos um i have a couple um they're they're not visible you know if i if i want them not to be visible but he had his he had visible tattoos already which is one of those things that hits white people in a deficit lens kind of way um and he, he wore his pants a certain way and he had his hair uh kind of shagged out in a certain way and he talked in a certain kind of slang and drawl. And, and 
I, I have experienced moments where I've like been interacting with, interacting with students like that and just had these like thoughts flash through my head. Like it's too late for you kid. Like this is, this is, this is too late. Like you, you've got too much going on here to, to, to even worry about your math grade. Like, and that's, that's a cancer. Like, like that's, that's a disease inside. I think 99% of white people. And I've spent a decade or more trying to, trying to fight it. And, and I guess what I, what I would like to see is I would like to see us figure out a way to get white teachers before they're in the classroom fighting it. Um, Cause it took me getting into the classroom and, you know, blundering through things right to figure this out experiencing it and then correcting it right so if we can be preemptive in 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 teacher um training programs perhaps yeah um, definitely not teach for america though and (laughs) that's a different podcast we could talk about that (laughs) come back episode number two with jay (laughs) Teach what's wrong with teach for america (laughs) and the deficit lens so well, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I had a question later on down in the podcast about that where you, you talk about that issue. Um, but I think it's critical that uh, teachers are aware of what they bring to the table, that that racism, power, prejudice, and looking at their students with the deficit lens. I don't think they, they understand the negative impact that it has on those students. But And I think I, I think most teachers, most white Americans just don't believe in what you just said they don't believe that they carry that inside themselves of course um they they want to believe that they're better than that that they're they're better americans humans white people whatever um and i kind of it's what feel like what d'angelo said about that good bad binary when you talk about racism right they don't yeah they don't they don't i'm a good person right so right i'm one of the good people yeah it's impossible for me to be racist um they don't they don't get the nuance so, you know, moving on here, um, in your TED Talk, you mentioned a student was testing whether you are trustworthy, speaking about being a white dude, um, was yeah. testing whether you are trustworthy or not as a white educator by asking you if you use the N-word. I've heard this one before, Jay. Um, what do you do and what do you do when it comes up in a song, right? So you're like, you know, Jay, do you use the N-word, man? And if not, what do you do, you know, when it comes up in the song? Do you just like say it in your mind or whatever, right? I, I can hear the student asking you this. So tell us a bit about uh, that story for our listeners that, that you mentioned in your, your TED Talk about that, that instance. It's fascinating. Yes. So I have I, I've lots of stories about, um, about the N-word, about students talking to me about it, um, uh, just different stories. This is just, this is just one of them. Um, but it was a guy named David and he came up to me, I think it was, it was either before or after class. There weren't a lot of people in the room. And he said, he was like, well, I'm sad. Like, I got to ask you a question. I was like, yeah, David, he goes, do you ever use the N word? And except he said it, obviously. I mean, he said the N word. Um, and I kind of like took back a second. I was like, what? No. And he's like, yeah, I mean, but you use it sometimes. And I was like, no, no David, I, I don't. He, he didn't even like give me a chance. It wasn't even like he stopped to let me catch my breath. It's like, what he you going to say? Yeah, I, I say it in the shower. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I don't. I'm just, just saying that. And he knew, he knew that uh, this was, this was, this is a, several years ago, this story. So we'd listened to, I just want to, 
there's a couple Kanye songs from that first album or maybe the second album that I really loved that we used to listen to in class all the time. And he, and he knew I liked those songs. He was like, yeah, but watch that. Like, what would you do? Like you're in your car and you're all by yourself and you're driving around and you've got the windows up. Like nobody can hear you. And Kanye's rapping. Like, what, what do you do? And I was like, he's like, it was like, he's trying to lawyer me into admitting that I <laughs> said the N word when I was alone. Right. And I was like, no, David, I, I, I would, I just, skip that part of the song and he's like nah I don't, I don't know man i'm gonna keep my eye on you and he like walked out of the room um but i've had that moments like that throughout and and what and also whether also about the n-word just different stories about the n-word where i think students there's something i i i look untrustworthy and i don't blame them for me looking mm-hmm. untrustworthy i'm a, i'm a middle-aged white guy walking into the room and whether they've personally had poor experiences with white people or not, we're living in a time where the media is saturated with black teenagers, especially black males having negative experiences with white authority figures. Exactly. And I don't blame him for not trusting me. I I don't, I don't know why he chose that moment in that angle to try to trip me up, but um, I, I get it. I get, I get him wanting to, testing me out trying to see what what i was made of or just or maybe just maybe he was mad at me and hoping i would say something he could really be mad at me i don't know right Um, right i've i mean i've had that question also and and i've had discussions in my classroom about the n-word um and i i just simply don't use it and i don't think there is a place for white people to use that word at all i've actually stopped there was a I mean, at ten, all. Like, white people yeah. should not be saying the N-word. Uh, ten, I've had white ten, students at my school. We only have, like, four white people at my school. Okay. <laughs> and, and there's a couple of them that think it's cool to say the N-word. Yeah. And some of the actual black students don't – some of them, you know, throw some shade his way and look at him like, yeah, you shouldn't be saying that. But for the most part, he gets away with it, right? So – but I tell him, you know – I don't, this is not our place to use that word. And, yeah. and, and then the, his definition is like, it's how you spell it, man. And how you say it, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's context. And I'm like, yeah, I feel you, but no. Right. So, but there's always a space for these deeper conversations for that. And I think that student was trying to test you and see what your perspective was on that N word. Because like you said earlier about students, a lot of times we don't think they pay attention to politics or what's going on around them, but I think they're keenly aware of the nuances yeah. of what's surrounding them. And your answer was was a lot of information for that student. You know what I mean? How you answered that was gonna was gonna define a part of you, right? So Yeah. Anyway, as you were. What were you were gonna say something? I've actually well I was gonna say I've even stopped. I remember ten years ago or so, um I was April fourth, uh, the MLK assassination anniversary happened to be on the Friday before spring break, which, you know, is kind of a waste of a day. Um, and so I, I had heard this NPR thing about Bobby Kennedy and I w- I went to school and instead of like doing math, we like, we watched some King speeches. We watched the Kennedy speech. We, and I read an excerpt from letter from a Birmingham jail. And there, there's a, there's, a, there's just, there's some N words in there. And, and I remember stopping and asking, "Hey guys, do you want me to? Do you want me to edit this? Do you want me to say it? Do you want me not to say it?" And, and they told me to go ahead and say it. But I, ten years down the road now, I, I wouldn't do that anymore. I wouldn't even read it. 
mm. in a MLK quote. I'm mm. not, and I'm not saying that's the right thing for everybody. I'm not arguing that. Mm. But if I was, if that happened again, if I read letter from Birmingham Jail out loud this year, I will not say it. I'll just say N word. Um, right. That's that's changed for me. What if you had a uh, one of your students read it? What would you would you want them to say the word if oh, they read yeah. it out loud? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, my room's all black. I, there's no right. reason not to. I'm not gonna. I am not gonna be the one to tell them what to say or not say. <laughs> like, that's not my role. So you know, later on um, in that same TED talk, you mentioned you mentioned um, speaking about um, reading about Martin Luther King. You mentioned that same TED talk about the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and how that impacted the energy. Uh, in the room, in the school, and the and how it changed mm-hmm. the dynamic. Um, so my my Trump election story was this: I go to school, I show mm-hmm. up, I get I our school starts at eight fifty five, first period, right? Um, I go in about seven. I try to be there about seven seven thirty, right? Mm-hmm. Set up, just get my mind right. Um, and my my classroom is located right. Uh, beside the bathroom, which is good and bad, you know, convenient yeah, yeah, yeah. when I need to use the bathroom, but it's so convenient other times. Um, I walk in and I use the bathroom. It's probably about it's about seven forty five eight, um, and I'm like, you know, there's really no there's really no students there, right? Yet, I mean, there's some that start to come in. It's probably more like eight thirty um, before school is going to start first period, and. Uh, Someone had already tagged the bathroom door. Wow. Fuck Trump, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, just plain, no, no like artsy graffiti, just straight letters, normal font. Fuck Trump. Right. Uh now that just made me smile inside. Sure. I was like, I was like, yeah, it's gonna be a good day. <laughs> uh but in reality it was a somber day. It was kind yeah. of a weird students were kind of like looking at me, wondering. But my I've developed such a relationship with my students that they know already um that I, I did not vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, so that the issue of did you vote for him, Mr. Jeffords, was not even a question. It was just more like where do we what does this mean for us, right? And we kind of just we spent some time talking about that in each of my classes. And I remember during my planning period, the principal came down who is still, you know, early enough in the year that we haven't really developed a, a, a relationship, a mm-hmm. solid relationship. And he come down just to kind of talk to me randomly, which never happens. <laughs> and uh, he's a black principal, right? And I knew exactly why he was there. He didn't yeah. He didn't know me like my students knew me. So we had to have that. This this He didn't – we didn't talk politics at all. Which is probably appropriate from a principal, maybe, perhaps, you know. Um, it's just kind of a, a general gauging, you know what I mean? Kind of like your student was gauging you with the N word. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that experience that day. But um, in your TED talk, share with us a little bit about about the impact that it had and and on your classroom and your day at school. So, yeah, that's a great. To me, that's a great part of my teaching career because I. I came in right before Obama was elected and that gave me the opportunity. Obama's first election gave me the chance to kind of tackle race head on in my classroom. I mean, I teach math. And so 
the sliding race into the curriculum is it's not impossible, but it's not obvious either. It's not English or social studies. And so the Obama running the primary and, and, you know, clearly he's never going to beat Hillary and then he beats Hillary and then it's McCain and, and Sarah Palin and all that. And it just, it, it, it bubbled up in the math classroom and I let it bubble up. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend I didn't. I was very excited to let it bubble up. Um, and it let race come up. And then, it, and then again, in 2012, I got, I got to have that experience again. So I was so excited in 2016 because like most of uh, liberal America, I was certain that Hillary Clinton was going to win and continue the, you know, kind of the Obama legacy. And so I, my experience with the actual day of the election was the day before the election. So we had Tuesday off. I, you probably did too. Um, the, the actual election day, but the day before the election, I had spent the whole day Mm-mm. talking politics. Mm-mm. Oh, you, you, had, you went to work? You had the election day off? Yeah, you went to work on election day? Yeah. Oh, man, you got to move to Georgia. That's where uh, that's where it's at. Um, <laughs> no, well, I stayed home on election day. I think I just uh, quickly turned this podcast into a political podcast. <laughs> Welcome to What in the Political World podcast, Ryan. So the day before... Um, the day before the election, I didn't do math at all. I just talked politics. I talked about Obama. I talked about, I mean, and it was just a, it was kind of like a victory lap, even though the election hadn't happened. Of course, Hillary was going to win. And we were just talking about what that meant and, and what the legacy of the Democrats and, and just, you know, I, I showed videos, I showed speeches. I, and, and so when the election happened, my students, they already knew where I stood and who I was voting for. And they came in like they felt really sorry for me. Like, like I, I later, I later saw on, I didn't see this, but at the time, but someone on Twitter was like, Oh, I'm late for Wamsted's class. I got to get there. He's going to flip his shit today. Cause they thought I was, they were going to come in. I was just going to explode from anger. Um, but I, I, I couldn't even be angry. I was just depressed. Right. And I just kind of like moped around and they were ready for me to like talk about things, explain things, show maps, like, you know, and I, I did it, but I, I was so upset. My heart wasn't in it really. Um, and this really selfish and, um, really selfish that I, that I had my students wanted me to talk politics and I was so like wrapped up in my own pity. I couldn't do it. And I remember this, I'll never forget this. I remember walking down the hall later in the day during my playing period and talking to it. And there was an older black woman down the hall. Um, we were really good friends for a couple of years through that. She was a Spanish teacher and we used to trade books. She would buy books and she would buy two books and we'd each read and then we'd trade books and, and read and then we'd talk. And, and I was standing there talking to her and, and I was just complaining and complaining and talking about, oh my God, and Trump and this and America and this. And, and she just like, cut me off. I was like, Wamstead, like, you got to get a grip. We have been through, and by we, she meant black people. We have been through way worse things than this. Like, this may be the worst thing you've ever been through, but this is not the worst thing we've ever been through. Like, we're going to be okay. You just got to get yourself together. Mm. And it was like a, it was like a switch. Like, I was like, yeah, like, I'm being kind of a, a baby about this. And I went back to class and manage the rest of the day and then the next day to like engage with my students and talk about it mm-hmm. which is what they wanted from me um that's fascinating i had i had a completely different take on that we just we just had open conversations about race in my class about racism and 
what we think about uh, Donald Trump's perspective and how how do you you know students' questions to me were like how why do you think he's going to govern like what sort of things you, you think he's going to do because to us he seems like a, a an overt racist right and yeah. they were just more curious about like what that looks like for policy even though they didn't explicitly mention policy or sure um, they just were thinking more of those those like is this an existential crisis moment right um i didn't really i didn't really come in with that perspective it was a sad day i do share that with you um was, i was just so disappointed in white america that i i let myself throw a pity party for the first half of the day and just mm. kind of moped around and that was you know i'm not proud of that but it was it I was embarrassed. Um, well, at least you had a colleague. <laughs> a colleague help you snap out of it. So uh, that's it a, was such. That's a positive. That's it a was positive. a great moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, so you know, trying to stay on track here. Um, in that same TED talk, um, I want to talk a little bit about trust for a moment. Um, you tell the story of one student that uh, mumbled under his breath when you asked him about um, not doing his classwork. Right? He said. <laughs> Yeah, Wamstead, you just don't like black people, right? You use that moment uh, in the talk to talk about the importance of trust and and that building trust is crucial and critical in the classroom. Um, you want you want to shed a little light on that moment, that instance that happened? Yeah, and and that moment for me is a it's a sober it's another it's a wake up call moment because I I didn't I didn't handle it right. I it was a that happens once or twice a year to me. Um, someone will tell me I don't like black people and that's why they got a C or I don't like black people and that's why I'm asking them to move seats or whatever. And and now I'm, I'm able to handle it. But the first time that happened was that student and I, I just kind of freaked out. I was like, oh, he thinks I'm racist. And instead of engaging with him in any way, I took him to the principal's office and I like tried to get him in trouble. And it was just this whole ridiculous scene. And what I realized later, especially as through the years, as I've like had that happen so many times at the, at the time it felt like such a big deal because it never happened before. But now I'm like, I don't know why, why again, to go back to, to my student, David, and that, that N word conversation, why would you trust me? Like I, I get it. I get now on this side of, of my career, I, I get not trusting me. Um, I mean, especially if you've been, forget black and white, if you've been burned by school at all, you don't want to trust the teacher anyway, right? So you you throw the race complexity in there and it gets even harder. And I just, I if I could offer one advice to a, to a young teacher, I, I would just say, you got to, you got to, those kids got to, they got to trust you. They don't have to like you. And, and I think that's something we mix up a lot. And, you know, they always say, don't, you know, you're not supposed to be your friends or your students. And of course, you're not supposed to be friends. But I think the, the bleed over is like, it doesn't really matter if they like you. If it, but if they trust you, you're going to be all right. And trust is going to lead to like eventually. I mean, I, I do hope my students like me. I mean, mm-hmm. I genuinely, I generally like most of them. But more important than them liking me is them trusting me. It's the same as raising a child, if you've ever had that experience, is that, Sometimes your biological kids don't like you either, but they got to trust that you're looking out for them, that you're making good decisions, that you're trying to do what's best for the house or whatever. It's the same in the classroom. 
Um, and with that student you mentioned, I had the terrible experience several years later of, I, I thought of him for some reason and I Googled his name and, and saw him on a mugshot and I, 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 there was no news story attached to it, but it was, it was him. It was 100% him. There's no, there's no question about it. And I've just never been able to let go of that story of him not trusting me, me not handling it right. And then later on, you know, him ending up arrested in jail. And I'm not a direct cause of that, but I didn't help. Um, I, I could have, I think about that a lot. Um, that the, the job we have with these teenagers is, is way more important than, than the moment. It's, 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 we're, we're part of their arc of their whole lives and we've got to, got to do the right thing in that. So, um, building trust is, is, is critical, especially as a white education, white educator in front of white, um, black students, um, and Hispanic students or people of color. What do you do? What are some of the things in your years of experience and in your, since you've, you've come to the realization of how you can handle things better? Uh, what are some of the ways you, you go about building that trust? Um, if you were to give advice to, to educators, um, in these situations and in these spaces, because I agree so building trust is, is, is critical. And it's like the foundation to everything that you're going to do for the entire year in the classroom from management to lessons, to content, um, uh, if you don't have trust, you don't have anything, right? Right. They're not going to buy in. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a, it's all variations on, we talked about this at the very beginning about, about me bungling Spanish with a, if a student is a, is a better Spanish speaker than English speaker, speaker, if I can, you know, try to talk a little Spanish with them and be bad at it. Um, and engage with them in some uh, non-mathematical teachery way. I, I, I guess is the point of that. And, and I try to do that same thing with all my students. And that's why I say I was so I was so fortunate for the Obama being when he was, because it it taught me how to engage with race like like early. Like I I, I talk about uh, that was some advice I was given before I ever taught was that, you, you know, you're going to go into the school, you're, they're all going to be black, you're going to be white. And if you, if you ignore that or pretend it's not true, you're going to bungle it. And so you've got to like engage with race somehow, but no one told me how to do it. Um, so I had to kind of figure it out. And Obama helped me figure it out. It gave me that just some tracks to run on that, that, okay, well, here's this black president. This is the first black president we've ever had. And all of a sudden, if you start saying the word black in front of your students, at some point, they're going to say, well, yeah, but you're white. <laughs> like, I am white, yes. And then they're going to ask a question about XYZ, about whiteness, or you being white, or, you know, how to... They're very interested in uh, you already, as a, as a grown-up, as their teacher. Um, and so you add the the, the racial component to that. And they're, they're interested in that too. And, and engaging with them in that other space in an appropriate way. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's certainly teachers that like talk about what they do on the weekends with their kids. I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing to do. Um, I do that in Spanish every, <laughs> every Monday it's called weekend talk and we, 
I, I and that's cr- that's critical because there's some teachers that that separate their well, personal well, uh, lives from you know their students but I bring the majority of my life into my students which contributes to them having confidence and trust in me because they know and I I totally agree with that and I, I I guess by weekend I meant like uh, uh where you were what you drank um who, you know who you partied with I, I don't know that that that's what I meant I don't mean of course oh. you should bring your personal life into the classroom um to a degree to a degree, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not what you um, drank and who you partied with. No, no, no. I don't know what kind of well, weekends you have, Jay. But <laughs> <laughs> trust me, I have four children. I have nothing like that. Um, but they're very interested in my four children, and they love talking about them. Um, they love asking questions. And so when they ask, when we do weekend talk, it's like, "What'd you do this weekend?" Well, I'm said, "I'm like, well, I went to two basketball games and." a birthday party. And then I collapsed at seven 30 on Saturday night. They're like, well, said your life sounds lame. And I'm like, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> but, and then you find yes. out they sit at home on Snapchat for three hours <laughs> and, and you're like, okay. But today, I think what you're saying is the same thing I'm saying is that, is that when you bring your, when you bring your personal life into it, whether it's, whether it's a, an appropriate amount of politics or your family or an appropriate amount of your free time, what you do with your, with your free time or, or what you read or what you, the movie you watched or whatever, when you bring that into the classroom, I've always found the students light up at that. Um, mm-hmm. And what I have found over and over again is that if you crack that door open a little bit as a, as a white teacher in an all-black room, they will bring blackness and whiteness into it. And if I'm willing to engage with that, it opens up a whole new level of trust. And that's the key. You're that willingness to engage right. that conversation because there's so many teachers that would turn away at that instant, right? And they just right. shut that door, right? Even if there was a crack, they'll just shut it because they're not comfortable having conversations about their whiteness in front of a, a room full of uh, uh, students of color, right? Uh, and, and we've but we've got to get comfortable point. with it. Got to get comfortable with it. I mean, it's I, it's imperative, right? It's a silly example, but Thanksgiving is a great example where they want to know what you did on Thanksgiving. And if you start talking, they'll say, Wamstead, white people eat blah, blah, blah. And and I'll say, well, this white guy does. Wait, do black people eat X, Y, Z? And they'll say, well, we do. And we can have a fun conversation about that. Um, but if I'm not willing to talk about black or white, I might freak out and be like, uh, and it just shuts down a conversation. Right. And that goes a long way in building trust. Yeah, being vulnerable is is what it's about, right? If if you're if you're vulnerable and honest, the students see that. I think a lot of times teachers tend to separate themselves from their students and think that, like you mentioned, we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, like the students are just disconnected. They don't know what's going on around them. They don't know this and that. Yeah, when you take that perspective, then yeah, of course you think that they don't know when in reality they do know, right? So, you know, uh, keeping on track here, um, uh, in your article, Forgiveness is Not the Easy Way Out of Racism, um, you talked about this, uh, you used a uh, Borges story, Borges by the I, I know that. you, you uh, said that. Legend to demonstrate that white people really do just want to get over racism and move on. Instead of doing the hard work of addressing issues of structural racism and implicit bias and how that manifests itself in our school and in our classrooms. 
you know, it made me think about this notion of meritocracy and the pull yourselves up by the bootstraps mentality that some educators mm-hmm. have, right? So how do you see this playing out and in, uh, in your interactions uh, and writings and Twitter feeds uh, with educators today? And what steps can we take as, as white educators to push past that mentality? You know, thinking here about teachers that subscribe to that that meritocracy, uh, that menta- that mentality, um, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah, and the, the word for us is where I am in Atlanta is accountability, right? We've got to we've got to hold these students accountable for their their for their actions, for their grades, for their this, for their that, and and, and that it's it's part of that meritocracy. It's part of that we can we can it's all level, and and if you if you do the right thing, you'll thrive, and if you do the wrong thing, you will not thrive. And we just have to hold these students accountable and teach them to do the right thing, and then they're going to rise up by their bootstraps and all will be well. And I think that is another one of those things like we talked about earlier in the podcast, that's just baked into the brains of most white Americans is, is that, that Horatio Alger story of, of making something out of nothing. And, and we, we, we believe it. We, we, we want it's, that's, that's a, a deficit. That's part of our deficit lens as we walk into a room full of children other than us. And we think, well, if they wanted to, they could X, Y, Z. Um, and, and that's just historically um, kind of a lie. <laughs> well, I just kind of uh, like that. This I've heard, I don't know where I heard this, but somewhere over the years that um, it's hard to pull yourself up by the bootstraps when you don't own a pair of boots. Yeah. And, uh, that's always stood out to me. I don't know who said that. Whoever did, you know, props to well, you, but... Um, Obama, Obama said it. I when I cited, I don't it, think he Obama originated said, that statement, no. but I know King said it also. But again, I'm not sure he originated it. Um, but it's in both of their writings. But yeah, that's certain. I mean, like the school I teach in is um, has a, has a real high poverty rate, and it's the very definition of there's not a lot of boots. Um, so we got to not only teach children how to pull themselves up by the boots, but we got to build some boots first. And it's just, it's a, it, it's, it's not a level playing field. And I, I, I think lot, there's lots of people that know that, but the prevailing myth of white America is that all is well, all is level. And just hard work you, and you can do it. Just hard work. What's your and you problem? Can do it. What's and, your problem? And to go back to affirmative action, like how dare we give precedence to a black applicant over a white applicant because everything's level and it should just be blind or whatever. Right, right. Judge me on my and, merits. Yeah. <laughs> and it's back to that that Borges story, which I can't say it. Borges, I can't roll Borges, that. Borges, Borges. Yeah, I, I can't do it. Um, <laughs> I read it. Uh, I read Borges in English like most of us. Um, At least you don't say Borges. I, I know better than that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that story, it's, it, it's a simple little story, but it, the, the point of the piece I wrote is that white people are desperate to, to, to call racism over and we're desperate to, and to get, to get to this meth meritocracy. We think where there's, there's no bias, there's no prejudice, there's no racism. We're post-racial. I mean, right. We there voted for couple, our first black president. Come on, America. It's all good, right? <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Um, that's, uh. Yeah, th- those notions are tough, and they really they really impact uh, that lens that that white teachers bring. So, what do you think? Uh, thinking about 
um, how white teachers um, come into the classroom with a what we call a white savior complex. Yeah, I'm going to save the the poor black kids or the poor Hispanic kids. I want to go to I want to go work in a high poverty school. I want to be that change. Um, thinking here of all these Hollywood movies that teacher educators and I'm I'm sure some some educators have been inspired by that. But um, just briefly, what do you think about this notion of the um, and how would you address that white savior complex? Because I've confronted it, I've seen it, I've seen educators with that mentality of I'm going to save these children. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, so much of, so much of white America's conception of a all black or all brown classroom is based from those movies. Um, most white people didn't go to schools where they were surrounded by black and brown people. Um, mm-hmm. That's just, that's just stats in fact. So they're, when they hear about an all-black classroom, they, they picture freedom writers or dangerous minds or whatever. Those are the older ones. I'm sure there's newer ones. I just can't remember. Um, yeah, that, that white savior is like, it, that's cooked in us too. And, and I, I think that's, I definitely, I'm not sure, it's, I definitely like went through that, a phase like that in my mind as a young teacher, at least in terms of thinking that like, I don't, I don't need any help. I don't, I don't need, I know, I know, I know what I'm doing. I, 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 I can do this. I can, I can fix this. I can, I, I, I don't have to ask advice. I, I, you know, I got this. Like that, that's, that, that was kind of the way it was for me. I'm not sure I explicitly thought I was saving anybody, but I definitely thought I was going to be an awesome teacher because I was just awesome, you know? And looking back now, I would, I would call that a, definitely a form of white saviorism that, that I'm white and I'm choosing to go down here and I'm, it's going to all work out great, you know? Um, and that goes back to, again, what I was saying, we're, we're, I was not prepared. We're not preparing white teachers well to teach black and brown children. That's a big statement, but I believe it. Um, I agree with you 100%. We're definitely not doing, doing enough on the front end to prepare educators that want to yeah. go, go into these schools. Right. A lot of times white educators want to go to these schools. They do have that white savior complex. I mean, I've yeah. explicitly heard teachers, white teachers say to me, um, those kids would benefit by having me there. And I'm like, well, yeah. what, makes you, yeah. what makes you think that first off, I you know, it's like they will benefit by having me there. Like, and, and perhaps, and I mean, in what way, right? So it's like, you need to like start unpacking that when educators say that when you're in those spaces, we as what we call the woke right people, mm-hmm. I think the responsibility on us is on us as white educators to help other white educators see through this. You know, it shouldn't well, be people of color that 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 have to take up this mantle of of educating white people how to educate their people. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, we people... need to sit down, shut up, and listen when there's time to sit down, shut up, and listen. Yeah. But we also need to be proactive and calling out the bullshit. Um, you know from other white educators when things like that rear its ugly head in the classroom, when you see it. Yeah. We can't hide and always count on the black person in the room to do the job. <laughs> right. They can't, we I can't think, other them. No, there's one black here, one black person here. Let's let him or her speak about um, right. this topic. No, well, you, you can, you can do this. You got this if you do have it. Right. Um, so I just, I was thinking that. you already, you also brought up, uh, 
again, this is a whole nother podcast, but you brought up Teach for America and that's a whole, you know, kind of industry built along around the white savior model. I know not all of Teach for America is white. I, I've worked with several black Teach for America um, uh, members, alumni. I don't know. I can't remember what they call themselves. Um, but that that is a black, that is a white savior industry. <laughs> um <laughs> That's what it's, it's. That's the genesis. That's the that's the action that it does. We'll um, talk about that on another podcast. I I can't wait. We'll do some research when I when I get into policy. When I change this podcast name to policy, I know so. we talk so much uh, politics and Teach for America. So right. Jay, as we wrap up here, I'd like you to share your thoughts on how best as white educators to start doing this active anti-racist work, both within ourselves and in our classrooms slash schools, and not buying into the I don't see color or I love everyone sort of mentality, and to start working toward more equitable classrooms and addressing the more structural systems um, that continue to harm um, students of color. Uh, If you could take us out on that note. Yeah. So where do we go from here is what I'm, I'm asking. The, it's an the easy answer, question. It's an easy question. <laughs> no, yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not an. It's um, a deep question. So, I, I think one we need we need to we need to educate ourselves. Um, there's 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 books we need to read. There's there's some articles we need to look at. There's there's you know some blogs we can follow. Twitter Twitter. If you're on Twitter, Twitter people you can follow. If you're on Facebook, Facebook people you can follow. We need to to be looking at some of these, these black scholars who are writing about black children, black students. Um, and we need to be kind of breathing in that stuff. And then we need to be reading some of the, some of the white scholars who are also writing at us. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned D'Angelo and there's, there's others too. Um, yeah. There's Michelle Alexander. I think you mentioned her in one of your articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's many, um, authors. Yeah. As you were continue. The other thing we need is, I think we we need a more. I don't know how to put this. Well, I, I do know how to put it. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how to implement it. But this is not a policy podcast, so I'll just tell you my my dream idea would be that we need we need white people with white teachers, young white teachers with black mentors. That uh, when a guy like me at 30 years old, walks into a, a school like Mays, which is all black or almost all black, that that there's a, a system in place where the the, the principal, the, the admin, whoever, Atlanta Public Schools, something, where they where they take me and say, yeah, like like we're gonna stick you with this 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 black mentor. And you're actually gonna not just not just like a math mentor. I don't need a math mentor teacher. I didn't need, I mean I I needed some of that, but my mentor teacher, I didn't need math from him i needed or her i needed like like black children white teacher i needed some of that and it if every white teacher in america could could find themselves like well every let me put it this way every white teacher that teaches black st- students which is most of them um but i guess not all white teachers teach black students um but if they, if we can get some kind of institutional weight behind that not just so not just education where we hand you a book or or you go to a class once but where you actually you actually like like sit in some kind of continuing tutelage under somebody who's who's trained and interested in 
making you into a better teacher of black children. How's that for an answer? I think that's a good, I think that's a good answer. Um, it definitely does need to be some preemptive work uh, in teacher training programs to, to prepare teachers to step into these roles, right? Um, instead of just learning the hard way. Um, I yes. Think, so, I yeah. think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm similar in that I've learned along the way. I've had great mentors, but uh, as I mentioned before this podcast, I grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. I actually went to predominantly African-American schools from elementary to middle and to high school, yeah. which I teach in the same high school that I graduated from, which is a historic African-American high school. So, wow. But, but even within that, I'm, I'm keenly aware of my privilege. And have been for yeah. a very long time. So I, I feel like I step into this role with a little bit of wokeness, but also keenly aware of the freaking privilege that I bring to the table, right? Even in my awareness. Um, so that's, I think you hit the nail on the head, man. Uh, preemptive work on, which is which is systemic, which is which which takes uh, policy changes, and then but on the the personal work, the identity work is is read, 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 and read some more, right? Yeah. Um. And 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 just be open. I think if you listen to this podcast, um, it, it probably you're already open to learning a little <laughs> bit about um. Uh, the challenges of being a white educator and the privileges that we have and how we confront that. So that's a good start. But And I don't even think you need to read necessarily education, education books. I mean, some of the most impactful stuff to me ever has been reading ta Coates and all that he's written in the past eight years is reading, going back and reading Toni Morrison novels that I had read when I was young and dumb. Um, and and then reading reading other novels. I I now are are there people writing great education stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, I mean, right. Like, um, but no, that's a that's a that's a good point that you make. And and I wasn't explicitly talking about just educational material, um, but all those authors that you mentioned. Um, oh, I just wanted to drop some names. I just wanted no, in that's case somebody. Was those like, are those are good names to drop. Um, for sure. So, Jay, I, I appreciate the conversation today. It's been long. It's been engaging. Um, I think we've maxed out here at about 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 an hour. So, Jay, it's a good you got conversation. A, you got some work ahead of you to deal with it. That's all good, Jay. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, being on the podcast today and sharing your perspective and thoughts with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was great. And you're listening to What in the World Language Podcast.